book of Acts, but there's unmistakable internal evidence that the author of the book of Acts is Dr. Luke. Of course, Dr. Luke wrote the book of Luke and then the, the book of Acts. I had a wonderful professor in seminary by the name of Dick Gaffin who would have just loved it in God's providence if the books of the Bible had fallen in order, Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, Acts, because uh, Luke is just like the Empire Strikes Back follows Star Wars, Acts follows Luke. It's parts one and parts two. In the book of Luke, he covers about a 30-year period from just before Jesus is born to Jesus' ascension. In the book of Acts, he covers from Jesus' ascension through the next three decades of early church history. He likely wrote the book around uh, 63 AD to the early 70s AD. Not that it took him that long to write it. We just don't know precisely the years in which he wrote it. And uh, there's uniform testimony among early Christian writings, even as early as 170 AD, that indeed Luke was the author. Interesting question here. How many New Testament writers wrote more of the New Testament than Luke? What's your guess? Anybody? Come on, speak up. Zero. I'm in an OPC church. There's no other denomination that would get that right, right? Everybody would say there's at least one. Of course, Paul wrote more than Luke. Paul indeed wrote more books of the Bible, but if you look at sheer volume of how much is written in the book of Luke and the book of Acts put together, Luke wrote more than any other New Testament author, even if, and this is the part that blows me away, even if Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure who the book author of Hebrews was. Paul is certainly likely candid. But even if Paul wrote Hebrews, Luke wrote more than he did. Luke was a Gentile by birth, well-educated in Greek culture, a physician by profession. He was a companion of Paul, and he was a loyal friend. He stayed with Paul at a time when others deserted him. And he was a companion of Paul at various times from Paul's second missionary journey to Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. And he had an outstanding command of the Greek language. His vocabulary was extensive. He shows geographical and cultural sensitivity. And it's interesting, when he's describing, for example, Peter in a Jewish setting, he uses more Semitic uh, uh, sort of expressions, even though he's writing in Greek. And when he describes Paul in a Greek Hellenistic setting, he uses language appropriate for that. He is a historian's delight to read. The details he includes are sharp, precise, covering lands from Jerusalem to Rome, covering all kinds of peoples, cultures, a variety of governmental administrations, court scenes. Modern archaeological findings reveal that Luke used the proper terms for the time and place being described. And Luke doesn't just show the successes and the good of the New Testament church. He also shows at times the failures and the bad. Well, uh, we're going to begin with verses 1 through 3 now. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
The first thing I want you to notice, uh, as I mentioned, that this is the second part of a two-series work. Uh, and uh, secondly, I want you to notice here that Luke is profoundly concerned that the truth be told. At the beginning of the book of Luke, he says this, and, and, he, and in both books, he writes to a man by the name of Theophilus. And we don't know much or really anything else about Theophilus except that Luke refers to him in the book of Luke as the most excellent Theophilus. So Theophilus was probably an official or a, position, a person of position or wealth. But in the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so there, although Luke acknowledges that many others had written about Jesus' life, he indicates that he did not just rely on these reports, but rather through personal investigation, testimony from eyewitnesses, he wrote. Now, why is Luke so concerned about having it just right? Why is he so concerned about having it exactly true? It's because the truth is very important to God. And the scriptures tell us that the authors of scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. And certainly we can refer to these authors as authors, but behind their authorship is God himself who is uh, working through these men to write exactly what God wants. It's recorded 78 times in the Gospels that Jesus said, began a sentence, Amen, Amen, truly, truly, or I tell you the truth. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 19, the Lord says, I, Yahweh, speak the truth. And in John chapter 8, to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, we live in a time when there is doubt about whether truth can be known. There, now, there's been skepticism probably through all centuries, but perhaps there's more permeating our culture than it, in some, it's some of the other uh, centuries or cultures. The, uh, the author Flannery O'Connor said, I preach there are all kinds of truth, your truth and somebody else's. And don't you get that time like somebody says, well, if that's true for you, I'm glad. You know, uh, that, that permeates our culture. But she goes on to say, but behind all of them, there is only one truth, and that there is no truth. Okay, well, skepticism didn't start in the 20th century, right? I mean, um, uh, it, there was a French philosopher, Rene Descartes, who was born in 1596. And he wrestled with how he could know that anything he believed was true. This is not 1969 in the Grateful Dead. This is the early 1600s. And he has the question of how can I know what's true? And he wrestled with it so deeply that he questioned how did he know that he really existed? And ultimately, he concluded with the assertion, I think, therefore I am. You've probably heard that expression. 
And what he was saying, his logic was, how do I know I exist? Well, I think. And if I think, then I must exist. I saw a t-shirt years ago that said, I think, therefore I am. I think. (laughs) Did you hear how Descartes died? It was kind of tragic. He was in a cafe outside Paris. And the waitress said, Dr. Descartes, would you like more coffee? And he said, I think not. And he just vanished. (laughs) Dear friends, God is neither confused nor pondering whether he exists. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is neither confused nor pondering whether you exist. Because through Christ, all things were created. And you live and move and have your being in the Lord. And the Lord and those whom he carried along by the Holy Spirit, including Dr. Luke, cared greatly about the truth. And Luke reiterates here that their assurance of Jesus' resurrection was not based on dreamt-up stories, but by concrete appearances of Christ with convincing proofs over 40 days. And remember, initially, the disciples did not believe that Jesus was raised, but their unwillingness to believe was overcome by clear evidence presented on him, presented to them, and not just one single experience, but rather repeated proofs. So the Lord and the Lord's servant to Luke wants us to know the truth. And this truth gives us hope and joy throughout the days of our lives and and even or even maybe especially during the difficult times perhaps some of you looking over recent years can hardly believe what you've been through if someone could have told you what was ahead you might not have believed him or her for some of you there may have been more and deeper trials than you imagined or there might have been more and deeper changes to your life than you would have imagined and how do, you, how do you get through it all? For the Christian, it is the daily, hourly, moment-by-moment memory that bringing to mind that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And it is the conviction that one day feeble hands will be strengthened, knees will, that are giving away will be made steady, that sorrow and sighing will flee away, and gladness will overtake. And it's not because portfolios have fattened. It's not because we've achieved an independence from the cares of the world through the work of our hands. And it's certainly not because society evolves to a place of peace and understanding. It's because Calvary. It's because there is irrefutable proof that God loves us. And God is profoundly concerned that the truth of that message be sustained and spread. Now, verses 4 through 8. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Uh, Luke recounts what Jesus told them while they were together in this post-resurrection, pre-ascension period. And Jesus gives them two commands, stay and wait. Stay in Jerusalem, don't go some other place, don't go back to Galilee, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon me. Jerusalem was the place where Jesus was formerly rejected and Jerusalem is the place where a fresh witness to him will begin. And the disciples ask Jesus a question. It's a big question. They say, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Uh, was God about to bring about his final and lasting state? Was he on the verge of establishing his final and lasting rule? And you can understand why they're asking this question now. Jesus is just risen from the dead, and he's, pour, he's promising the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice Jesus' answer. First of all, he says, the time of this event remains God's secret. Secondly, power is going to come upon them with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And third, the pouring out of this Holy Spirit is going to give them the capacity to carry out a great task. The task that Jesus has for them to take news of him, attestation of what they have seen and heard and touched, to give firsthand accounts starting in Jerusalem, going to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the known world at that time. And there is this geographical, geographical pro, uh, progression, local, regional, and global. The scope of their task is worldwide. And this progression of taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth ultimately is the outline for the 28 chapters for the book of Acts. Now verses 9 through 14. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Here they were on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about three quarters of a mile outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus goes from one place to another and is not horizontal, is vertical. He ascends from earth to heaven and the disciples are watching. And then a couple of angels come, and they ask a question which strikes me kind of funny. I don't think it's intended to be funny or even ironic, maybe, but it kind of strikes me that way. You know, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up at the sky? And 
what the angels are making clear is that there's no, there's no need to linger there. They don't need to stand there longer, wanting, waiting for Jesus to come right back. His presence is no longer with them physically. He's going to send the, the Holy Spirit in other places in Scripture is called the Spirit of Jesus. He will send his spiritual presence soon, but he's given them a command. And from the time that he ascends to the time that he ultimately descends again, there is a job to be done, and he's already told them what it is. Get the gospel from here out. Now, the angel does assure the disciples that what they've seen, that is, Jesus in the air among the clouds, will be seen again. Just as he ascended one day, he will descend. They can count on that. But in the time between, they are now in an era which they work while it's day. And that's the backdrop for the work that they'll do in the book of Acts. And frankly, it's the backdrop for the work that we do now. Interesting, the, spread, the gospel spreading era has an end. It does not go on interminably, is that a word? When is it going to end? The day that Jesus returns. Um, you know, uh, uh, rightly, we give huge focus to the resurrection of Jesus, but it's kind of neat to spend an evening. If y'all talk about joking this morning, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on joking. You know, after night, they may say, well, this morning we heard a sermon on joking, and in the evening we just, the, the pastor was a joke. But, but I think it's special to spend a little time thinking about the ascension. Like this morning at Salem, we sang the hymn, Hail the Day That Sees Him Rise. If you just hear the name of that hymn, you think, yeah, the, the day, the, hail the day sees the rise when he came out of the tomb. But, but that, that hymn is talking about the day you see him rise whoosh, up into the skies, right? And so let's spend a little bit of time thinking about that. It is spoken of in multiple places by multiple people. Luke gives a double account of it in our passage today in Acts, also in Luke chapter 24. Mark refers to it in chapter 16. Jesus spoke of it again and again before his death. In John chapter 6, verse 62, he says, What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In John chapter 16, verse 28, he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into this world. I am leaving this world again and going to the Father. Paul refers to it repeatedly. In Ephesians 4, verse 10, he said, He who descended is himself also who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes this, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And the author of Hebrews, which may have been Paul, we don't know, said, Since we have a great high priest, who passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, dear friends, let's think for a few minutes about the significance of the ascension. i got three things I want you to consider about the ascension. First of all, it shows that the Father regarded the mediatorial work of Christ as sufficient and therefore admitted him to heavenly glory. In Isaiah chapter 53, 
looking ahead 700 years before the coming of Christ, but at his work, we read, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. And what? Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. Jesus' ascent into heaven, being welcomed by the Father, shows forth that his work was sufficient according to the Father, and he was admitted into heavenly glory. Hebrews 10, chapter 14 said, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. Second, the ascension girds our hope that we too shall ascend. It's an example of what's going to happen to us. Now, I'm not going to say Jesus' ascent and ours are going to be identical in every way. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and of those who have risen from the dead. He's also ascended from heaven. And the scripture tells us we're going to ascend as well. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise, rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. There we go. Up we go. In the clouds. Just like Jesus ascended in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 17 verse 24. Father I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. And he's going to fulfill that. We're going to be with him where he is and see his glory there. And how are we going to get there? We're going to ascend. And third, the ascension is instrumental in preparing a place for those who are in Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 14, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus' ascent was part of the plan, so he'd get there before us and prepare a place for us and then take us to be with us. In conclusion, I have two things to say. First of all, if you're here tonight and up until now, you haven't known the truth haven't followed Jesus who is the truth do so starting tonight if you're outside of Christ admit the path you're on and I'd ask you are you fulfilled by the path you're on if you're outside of Christ I have every confidence it is disappointing you admit that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness in need of cleansing believe on the one who has died who has risen, who has ascended, who is now in glory and who is coming again and who has justified many, who is sharing the spoils with the strong and who has opened the way to the holy place and we go in there confidently by his blood. And then secondly, I would say this to your friends and I appreciate the, the pastoral prayer from earlier in the service for additional churches to be raised up and and for the strengthening of missionaries and so forth let us continue to get the truth out we are people who have been 
set free by the truth. And we are like Jesus' disciples in the sense that we're in this period of time between his ascension and his return. Sure, they had eyewitness testimony of what they had seen, which we don't have. But we have the completed scriptures, who he is, what he has done, and we certainly have firsthand testimony of how he has changed our lives. And while we have opportunity, let's make that truth known. And each of you has a part to play. It can be inviting a neighbor you hardly know to dinner. Uh, it can be uh, bringing a friend to church. It can be showing mercy to someone who's lonely or immobilized or confused or less fortunate than you. It can be praying for people. It can be going on a missions trip. It can be encouraging people with the gospel. But there's a role for us to play in getting that precious truth out. Let's pray.